Welcome, everyone. This week, we're having a look back at some of my favorite interviews from this season of my television show, Pop Life. You can watch Pop Life every Saturday night at 8.30 on CTV News Channel and again on midnight. Uh, we always have fascinating people stop by. And here's just a small selection of some of the people we've had on this season. A little bit later on, we'll meet Bob Gruen. He was John Lennon's best friend and the photographer of, well, pretty much every photograph that you love taken of a rock star from the 1970s and 80s. We'll also meet the cast of Frozen. That's Kristen Bell, Adina Menzel, and Josh Gad. You didn't need to tell me that because if you have kids, you've already seen Frozen 2 probably 15 times. Later, we'll also meet Shania Twain. She's the queen of country pop, and she's about to start a new residency in Las Vegas. We'll talk about that a little bit. First up, though, here's Tegan and Sarah. You've probably already been listening to their new album, Hey, I'm Just Like You, and have definitely had their earwormy song, Everything is Awesome, from the Lego Movie soundtrack reverberating around your brain from time to time. They're Tegan and Sarah, the Grammy Award-nominated indie rock sensations, and they stop by the Pop Life Bar to discuss their new memoir, High School. They talk about how music became the perfect fit for them. They tell stories about writing their first song, Tegan Didn't Go to School Today, the important people in their lives, and how music became a replacement for drugs and alcohol. Here are indie rock superstars, Tegan and Sarah. You found a guitar mm -hmm. in the house that was your stepfather's... Uh, guitar that it was, I mean, kind of garbage almost, you know, thrown yeah. in the basement. Uh, and you wrote a song, and I love the, the title, Tegan Didn't Go to School Today. And yeah. I just love this. Very little, accurate, well, a very counting of, of what was going on in my life at the time. But, the, but, but also very relatable, like the thing, you yeah. know, right about what you know, right? Yeah. About the, the thing that's happening right in front of you. It was also a safe, like, we've been talking about this a little bit, that it was a safe way to show Tegan that I was writing a song was to do something sort of silly about right. her. Like, so if she laughed at me, that was okay because it was a joke. But if she laughed at me and then said, actually, that's really good, it was a way for me to sort of like not get rejected, I guess. Right. And then she did, she was like, let's record it. We got to write songs. You know, she was really excited. I mean, we were so obsessed with music. It was the 90s. Everyone, yeah. was, everyone wanted to be in a band. So the second All of our friends' brothers played guitar. Yeah, everyone around us. The sec second I figured out we could do it, I was just like, oh my God, well, we have to do this. Why yeah. would we just watch people play music when we can play it ourselves? <laughs> Why would we listen to anyone but ourselves? <laughs> and what was the reaction of the family? Because it's not an easy job. It's not, a, yeah. it's not something, no one can say, here's a book about how to be a, 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 yeah. a musician. Here's a book about how to be a, a rock star. That doesn't exist. No. Look, our family reacted, I think, the way most people's would, which was we had picked up a guitar when we were 15, started writing songs, and certainly by the time we graduated high school, there was an enormous amount of attention and heat on us. A lot of people in the industry were excited about us in Canada. We got offered a demo deal by Polygram. My parents were tentative, but they were excited. They, they were absolutely, they were in the same place we were. They saw us as being a bit you know, right. untethered, right. and yeah. they saw this thing starting to focus us, and I think that they were really encouraging. They did initially say, like, can you not go to university at the same time? Right. Right. And we were really resistant to that because we weren't interested in that path, but um, I think they were really thrilled. Yeah. And my parents describe the, their reaction to early music as being shock. You know, <laughs> they couldn't believe what we were doing. The first time my mom heard us singing together, her question to us was, well, how do you know how to do that? And the answer for most of us creatives is, I don't know. We don't know. It just happens. You just 
do it. Well, growing up, you fought all the time. Is yeah. Right? And so perhaps part of that surprise was just that they do anything together, <laughs> you know? You know, I think, I think our mom would say that we always were performers. We always, uh, once we got going and doing our little bits, we could always draw attention to us. And, you know, it was mostly storytelling. And our grandparents were great storytellers. And I think we probably adopted their sort of style of like banter. But I do think that when we were able to like actually make something, like make music and do something original, there was this sort of uh, this sort of sense of like uh, that it was that we were sort of born to do it. I know that sounds so cheesy, but like I think my mom now will say, you always sort of had this natural um, thing when you when people were around you performed for them, and so when music became uh, it sort of became a tool, a way to sort of like corral that and and and. Um, and even our even our business sense was a bit innate. I'm in conversation with indie rock superstars Tegan and Sarah. I've read a great deal about you uh, in, uh, in preparation for this interview. And, Thank you. And, and I can't remember <laughs> whether it is from the book or an article that I read about you, uh, but the line is, I didn't always want to be with my sister, but I couldn't imagine not being with her. Right, yeah. And that really struck me as... as uh, this this tether that you have that is so strong and mm -hmm. unbendable uh, and kind of you know it's beautiful in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I've said this in the context of our work before, but at times when it's been very difficult to I, I question what we're doing, mm -hmm. it's almost like I don't have an option. Right. You know, because I wouldn't just be leaving my band; I would be breaking up my family in a weird way. And I think that um, I think that's been a an incredible pro to this business. I think it's why we've survived so long. I think it's why we care so much still. I think it's why we've never wavered on our intention to be the people we are and to do our best work and to, you know, keep at this. But it's also the con in the sense that, like, it can be very difficult to feel like an individual. It can feel very difficult to feel like you are the master of your own universe. At times, I feel like, Sarah, it takes precedence over everything else. That's very difficult in my other relationships sometimes because that's not normal you know you move on you, right. you you grow up and you move out of your family home and you build your own family and i i think that there have been points to sarah and i's lives that have felt very suffocating because we are stuck together and this misconception that's very popular out there that we must be best friends who enjoy everything and we're seeing the world together <laughs> skipping through life and it's like no we're we're business owners and yeah. partners and are in a band and we make hundreds of decisions a week together and sometimes we don't get along and sometimes I feel incredibly grateful that I get to do this with Sarah but other times I feel overwhelmed by it and um, and I think as young people it was like that too you know you yeah. want to be seen as an individual that's all we want is when we want to be seen you well, know you and then a, we're just always grouped together it's you hard. You get a sense of that from the book. Yeah. Uh, a, a sense of you need each other, but you want to get away from well, each and other. And trying to find who you are, trying to figure out who you are. Yeah. And uh, you tell a story about Mr. Russell uh, mm. in the book that uh, made such a huge impact on you at the moment. Do you mind sort of recounting that? Yeah, you know, I think that as I was getting closer to accepting my sexuality, and, you know, to be fair, I was, like, having relationships with girls. I mean, I had accepted it to a, the degree right. that made me happy and comfortable. <laughs> right. But I didn't really name it until I was, um, I was almost out of high school. I was in grade 12. And there was a teacher in the school who it was our drama teacher who I suspected was gay. Um, I had no confirmation for that. Mm -hmm. I just 
felt like I knew that. And, uh, and I was in a class where there was homophobic language being used, derogatory words, homophobic words being used. And that was pretty common. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the reaction from the teacher was, 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 in my opinion, not acceptable. And I stood up to the teacher and to the, to the, to the student, and I ended up throwing a chair and running out of the class. It was a very disruptive right. moment. But I ran to Mr. Russell in, in the book. It, this, this was not his name in, in school. But Mr. Russell, um, the drama teacher, because I felt like he was, if there was an adult in the, in the building that was safe, it would be him. Mm -hmm. And I think I made that that connection because um, because I felt that he would understand what I was trying to do in that situation that I wasn't being bad I was I was um, I was I was trying to protect or stand up for uh, queer people but also probably there was a part of me that wanted to tell someone that it was also because I was gay and I needed someone who I thought would be my ally or at least I knew maybe would be gay or would admit they were gay and in the book, it's a bit of a heartbreaker for me because I never talked to him about it. He was my ally and he did support me in that situation and I didn't get in trouble and there was a lot of understanding and empathy about my outburst in class. But it was a heartbreaker for me because I think I, I longed for an adult connection. And while my mom, and there was, there was lots of adults in my life who would have, I think, gratefully taken that information from me, I think I recognized that I needed it to be someone who would understand and who was probably gay, and I, and I really did long to have that connection with an adult at that age, and unfortunately I didn't, you know. But that's also led into, I, I wanted to tell that story in the book because I also think that it's partly what has inspired uh, the community builders that we are now. We, we really care about our fan base. We really care about the, the artists in our community, and we wanted to build the community that didn't exist for us when we were young. We want to be mentors because we wanted mentors when we were younger. Um, we want to be uh, a safe place for people to go when they are unsure about what they are or who they are or what they should do. And, um, and I think that was born out of that desire when I was a young person and not having it. Just before the cameras rolled, we were talking about the book and the kind of universal uh, story that is behind the book. High school is an awkward, unusual time for, for so many people. And mm -hmm. these stories are very specific in the sense that it's Calgary and it's you and sure. it's music. And, but the, the universal themes that, that come out of that uh, are just that. They are universal. So what kind of advice would you offer to kids who are in high school now, and you touched on it just mm -hmm. in your last answer, but uh, what kind of advice would you give to kids in high school now, if you could? I mean, I think the big, the big thing that changed the course of our lives was finding something that we were passionate about, right. and that's not, and we got lucky, so we found it young in life. Yeah. I know it's a lot of pressure to say to a young person, just find something yeah. you really feel passionate about and you'll be fine. But. I certainly think that we benefited from taking, we took a lot of different kinds of music lessons, we joined a lot of different groups, at one point we wanted to do drama stuff, uh, we volunteered, my parents forced us to get a job. I think by exploring more of ourselves we were able to find the things that we were interested in and, and, and a community that was also interested in that and that really helped us get through the tough times. I think the biggest piece of advice we give to young people but also to parents like who come see our shows and have teenagers or have kids that are maybe like us like who are LGBTQ identified is to be patient with each other. That was indie rock superstars Tegan and Sarah. Next up we'll meet Kristen Bell, Adina Menzel and Josh Gad. They're the stars of a little movie called Frozen 2. Welcome back everyone. We're going to meet the cast of Frozen 2. Kristen Bell, Adina Menzel and Josh Gad 
Those names are probably household names around your house if you have kids because you've seen this movie over and over and over again. It's breaking box office records, and we're thrilled to have the cast with us. Here's the cast of Frozen 2. What would I do without you? You'll always have me. Has Elsa seemed weird to you? She seems like Elsa. There's this voice. Voice? What does that mean? Kingdom is not safe. It's been three years, probably, or so that you've been working on this, and I would imagine that means it's been three years of people saying to you, what can you tell me about it? It has been three years <laughs> of people asking me, what can you say about it? Um, and I will answer the same way I have for the last three years. You will find out in three short weeks. And, uh, and how do people respond to that? Like, how do your, you must have friends that have little kids that are very excited about this idea. Oh, it's it's so funny. I got the, I got such a crazy text from my uh, 18-year-old niece the other day just asking me questions about the plot. And I'm That's like, funny. just wait, just, you'll <laughs> see. Why do you need me to spoil it for you? We worked on the first one, which came out six years ago, mm -hmm. three years prior to that. And there were, it was always spill the beans, spill the beans. <laughs> but the only people I told were my kids. You and trusted your children? Not at all, but I was very excited. <laughs> it goes through so many incarnations. Yeah. They're really... Um, it's actually, um, it's great. It, it, the process of, of working on this with the Disney, our Disney family and how collaborative they are and they sort of let you in on every step of the way and what they're thinking and how they're building things and what works and what doesn't work. And so every time we come in, whether it be every three months to then as it starts to get closer, every six weeks, every three weeks, and you see the nuances and the changes. Um, and they let you add. Yeah. They say, what do you think she would do here? Which is like, Unlike any other process, they really let us infuse ourselves. I guess because characters. this takes so much longer than making a live action film. You know, you're coming in every three months for three years or something. You know, you do have more chance to fiddle with it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And they and they get a lot of opinions from very smart people at the company to see what works. Right. And anything that isn't hitting the highest emotional temperature, they take out of the mm -hmm. sequence. And you have the time to do that, which I think is why these animated movies are usually so good. Far away, as north as we can go, once stood an enchanted forest. You see an enchanted forest? Yes. It was a magical place. But something went wrong. Since then, no one can get in or out. Wow. Papa, that was epic. This is a journey of self-discovery. This is a journey of not only dealing with the challenges of the unknown uh, in terms of confronting your future, but also dealing with your past, reconciling mm -hmm. your past. And Anna, Elsa, Kristoff, Sven, and Olaf are all on that journey, uh, more so than even the first film. This is a family adventure. And it's something that I think is gonna surprise, uh, entertain, and ultimately challenge our audience, who also has grown since the first movie came out six years ago. Well, I think we spoke around that time, and there was a, a little Olaf doll 
that, right. that had come out, a little like a stuffed thing. And did you just have a daughter then? Am I remembering the story? Mm -hmm. My daughter was two yeah. when the movie came out. But she kind of had her mind blown. That she had her mind blown. She, she the, the craziest thing was I took, you're breaking our side. I am right. breaking We're, the we, we have more. <laughs> um, but she was two, and I took her to go see Monsters University in the theater. Mm. And there was the trailer, the teaser trailer for Frozen was Olaf and Sven, uh, and there was no dialogue, right. but Olaf laughed. And I'll never forget, she <laughs> looked at me, and that she didn't know, she looked at me and she goes, Dada? More Dada. And that was like one of those moments in life that you just freeze, and you're like, oh God, I love you so much. <laughs> um, but uh, having just taken both my daughters now, because I have two, five and eight, to go see a screening of the sequel, mm -hmm. I don't think I have been more nervous than their response to right. the movie because I was like, God, if they don't like it, I'm screwed. <laughs> and not only were their jaws on the floor the entire time, but my oldest daughter, who grew up with the first one, looks at me and she goes, Daddy, I think I loved it even more than the first one. Uh. And, you know, had a lot of questions, but uh, ultimately my favorite question was, when can we see it again? And that is the thing that, like, is the icing on the cake for me, is I get to share this movie about sisters with my two daughters um, who have their own relationship mm -hmm. that reflects that of Anna and Elsa's. And I think that that's the most beautiful part about this franchise. Well, And you grew up as a Disney kid as well, though. I mean, you love those loving, movies. You, you understand that love of that, right? Yeah, I mean, I was... I was sort of at the same age during the second golden age of mm -hmm. Disney animation. So I was the kid who grew up at that pivotal juncture where Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, mm -hmm. Aladdin and Lion King just like, it was insane. Yeah. Uh, it was like Beatlemania. You would, you <laughs> would just wait with anticipation at what Disney was gonna do next. And you know, no character had a bigger influence on me than Robin Williams' brilliant uh, performances of the genie and Aladdin and sitting in a dark theater at that age I remember looking at my mo my mom and being like I want to do that one day I'm in conversation with the cast of Frozen 2 Kristen Bell Idina Menzel and Josh Gad I saw you saying let it go at uh, D23 whenever that was six years ago time. probably I the first time around too. and it snowed inside they made it snow inside and it blew my mind and I thought, oh, you know, thanks. if this, if they can translate this, what I'm hearing and seeing right now onto the screen uh, in the first time around, I thought this will be massive. And it was. As you were standing there, before anybody saw the movie, uh, what were you thinking? Were you thinking, this is going to be huge, this is going to change everything? No. I no? Didn't, <laughs> I didn't know. I, I, like we were saying, it was this sort of slow roll of a success with the first movie. And when you're just aware that you're working with incredible people mm -hmm. with this company that's done this, this, these iconic films. Um, you, you've, as a performer, to be in a Disney movie and singing as a princess or something like that, yeah, I mean, yeah. that was all that was important. And, and I, I was so excited to be a part of that. And then that song, I had no idea. I mean, I knew that I loved the song. I knew that it felt great when the characters sang the song, but you have no idea what something's, how something's going to resonate with people. That was Adina Menzel, Josh Gad, and Kristen Bell talking about the success of Frozen 2. Next up, 
Shania Twain. Stay with us. Welcome back, everyone, to my look back at some of my favorite interviews from this season of my TV show, Pop Life. You can watch us every Saturday night at 8.30 on the CTV News Channel, midnight on CTV. Here's queen of country pop Shania Twain. She sold over 100 million records, making the Canadian-born singer the best-selling female artist in country music history and one of the best-selling music artists of all time. In this Pop Life conversation, we talked about going back to Las Vegas and her battle with stage fright. You've been performing on stage since you were about eight years old. Mm -hmm. uh, how has performing changed? Is it still for you just completely the connection with the audience and, and it's the same whether you're eight years old singing in a, in a, a bar in, in Canada or doing it in Las Vegas? You just want to make that connection. For some reason, that connection for me, I've never even thought about it. It's just always been there. Um, I wouldn't be able to break it down and intellectualize it in any way. I mean, starting at eight years old, maybe at that age, you can safely say that you haven't started intellectualizing right. things yet. You're right. still innocent and you're, I would have been experiencing it as a very pure and natural thing to do. And besides, I, I've always had terrible stage fright, so I would have to have... I think the only way to deal with it would have been to just forget about what I was doing um, and jump right into we're all in this together mm -hmm. to feel, to not feel isolated. So yeah, no, nothing's changed. I'm still the eight-year-old um, who is afraid to go on stage and how, as soon as I'm embraced by the audience, right. then I don't feel like I'm standing alone. Well, how do you make that first step if you have such terrible stage fright? And I get it, John Lennon, uh, yeah. you know, so many people have it. How do you make that first step onto the stage then? It's not a step, it's a leap. <laughs> it's a jump. Um, you know, uh, Pavarotti said every night before going on stage, just before going on stage, okay, everybody, it's time to die. Wow. Because it feels like you're you're crossing a threshold, this petrifying threshold, and it is literally a leap. You don't, it's the unknown every night. That's the thing about live. Mm -hmm. um, it's so unknown. You could, uh, I didn't want to say it, but you know, like things happen um, that are unexpected. We'll, we'll somewhere here. Things happen that are unexpected. Uh, sometimes you forget the words. I mean, how embarrassing is that? So if you think about everything that could go wrong, which is normally what somebody with stage fright does. Mm -hmm. um, you go through this panic for a bit, and then once you've crossed that threshold and you've taken the leap, now I feel once I'm there that I'm embraced by the audience. And it's over. How do you prepare for a show now? You had some, you've, you've written about it in your autobiography, you had some vocal mm -hmm. problems, and yes. it has made a difference in the way that you prepare on the day. Definitely, I mean, it's made a big difference in the way I sound. Mm -hmm. um, there are, in some areas, subtle differences, in other areas, bigger differences. So a lot of it um, at the beginning was just fear of, oh, what am I even capable of doing? Right. Right. Um, uh, how will my stamina be? It's a very athletic thing to be a singer for 90 minutes uh, a night, uh, nonstop. And uh, when you're a, an active performer as well, you're running around everywhere. You've got to pace everything. So my preparation, first of all, is fitness, getting fit. Mm -hmm. 
secondly, I do a lot more warming up than I ever had to do before. And in my case, um, I don't have a voice problem in the sense of my vocal cords. I have a neurological I see. problem right. from the Lyme disease. So the nerves that trigger the voice are weak. That will never recover. Mm -hmm. I, have to, I just have to accept that. And I, I've had to face and challenge myself to work with it and around it. So uh, it's like having a weak knee and trying to walk without a limp. Right. I mean, it's as simple as that. And you never know when the knee's going to give out on you. So you, either, you have to be brave about it and accept that that, that is now what I'm performing with. Um, so I proved to myself that I can do it, that I, can, that I have the courage to do it. But it's not easy. I mean, mm -hmm. I have more of a challenge. I have to warm up for a couple of hours every night. That's right. So you, you just know? can't walk out on stage and, and do it. And, you know, I, I can't sing on, in an impromptu situation. Right. It, right. That really breaks my heart. I hear, you know, everyone who came in the wave, uh, sort of at your t point where you, you went away for a little while, yeah. a lot of people came up and they use words like icon. They use words like trailblazer. Uh, they say we wouldn't be here if not for Shania. <laughs> That's awesome. and, and, and how does that make you feel? Because you can't wake up in the morning and go, I am an icon. Look at my icon. <laughs> my iconness. Yes, my iconness. Uh, Are you, you know, able for to a long time. compute it even, you know? Well, it's interesting. Uh, until, I, until I started working again in music, mm -hmm. you know, after. Um, contemplating live stage for a long, 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 long time. And maybe even at some point I did say, I don't, I just, I can't do it. I mean, how can I do it if, if, if I don't know when it's going to give out or whatever? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a uh, terrible, terrible feeling. So uh, I did give up on it for a while. But while all of this, what people call trailblazing and um, icon building and all of that was, was happening, I definitely had no idea. I was not <laughs> focused or aware of any of that element of my, of, my, of what Shania meant to other mm -hmm. people or what the music meant to other people as, as artists. I was just doing it. I think when you're really busy doing it, you're not thinking about, um, you know, how important you are or or anything like that. And it wasn't, re it wasn't until I came back that I realized how important I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I, I mean, I think sometimes you have to step away. The, the shows in Las Vegas were such a triumph uh, the last yes. time, and they will be again uh, this time. And, you know, after having that, that period where you thought you may never sing live again, yeah. and overcoming all the obstacles, do you ever think of yourself as a role model for people to look at and say, get back on that bike and do something uh, that maybe you thought you would never be able to do again? Uh, I'm like by the skin of my teeth, um, uh, still doing this. And I don't mean by luck. I mean by like, I found the courage somewhere to do it and 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 and, and face the fear of unknown, putting all the effort. I would say to my husband all the time, oh, I'm putting all this effort 
not even knowing if I'm right. even going to still be able to do it. Like I could be putting all this therapy and everything, the pain that I'm going through trying to uh, be a singer again, and it may not even work. That is That takes a lot of courage mm -hmm. um, because at the end, you don't know if you're going to achieve what you set out to achieve. Now, so being uh, invited to do a long-term residency in Las Vegas, not once but twice, it's a, such a privilege that I would never, you know, I'm like, I'm just feeling I'm in this really grateful um, headspace. And I, I think it would be a shame to waste it. Do you see yourself as someone who pushes boundaries? Definitely. I think just by being, by following your own, uh, by being original, mm -hmm. and if you're yourself, you are original. The more you're yourself, the more original you are. That is risk-taking right there, you know, uh, not following anybody else and being brave enough to be yourself and not be swayed by dissuasion or, or, or by criticism um, or fear of not being accepted. Uh, you can't, you're, you just cannot be uh, unique that way. Shania, thanks so much. What Thank a pleasure you. to see you. Yeah. My you. pleasure. Thank you. That was Shania Twain. Go see her right now if you happen to be in Las Vegas. Next up, Bob Gruen, one of the most legendary rock and roll photographers of all time. Welcome back, everybody. My next guest has taken pictures of everyone from Cab Calloway and Chuck Berry to the boss of Madonna, from the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin to Bob Marley and Ozzy Osbourne. Bob Gruen has snapped them all. If you're a music fan, you've been looking at his photos all your life and maybe even had his famous picture of John Lennon in his New York City t-shirt taped to your dorm wall. In this interview, we talk about his relationship with John Lennon and how he took some of the most famous pictures of a generation. Here's Bob Gruen. Uh, and I really took to it right away. So when I was eight years old, they gave me my first camera, uh, which is, again, an early memory. I remember opening the box and seeing the camera, how excited I was. And, and, and what was uh, it? What was just the idea that you could commemorate moments or that you got to spend time, quality time well, with your mom um, or what was it? I think show and tell is my favorite subject. I, yeah. I like seeing exciting things and telling people about them. Yeah. Uh, and I became the family photographer and then started taking pictures of dances and parties and things and, uh, and football and school and I would follow the fire engines in town to get exciting <laughs> pictures and uh, it was just what I started doing and uh, what I've always done. And when did it become a, a profession, a career? Because it's a tough market to break into, especially, <laughs> mm. I think, you know, rock and roll photographer is a, you know, you probably could it's have been. It's not a high-paying career. It, it, it probably could have been. <laughs> and in fact, when I started, it wasn't a career at all. They didn't have that word, rock yeah, photographer. Yeah, wedding photographer was um, probably more A online. much better career. You make yeah. a lot more money. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I started, actually, a friend of ours suggested we go to see Ike and Tina Turner. Right. And, uh, and he was, she was right, she, Tina was amazing. We came back a couple of days later, they played again in New York, and I brought my camera that time. It was a place called the Honka Monka Room. You, you can't make something like that up. <laughs> uh, it's a funky little place, but I was sitting on the floor. Actually, I remember taking a bunch of good pictures that night, but as Tina's, the end of her act, she dances off the stage with a strobe light flashing. Mm -hmm. And I opened the camera for one second and just decided to try my luck and, and see if I could capture a couple of images. And 
Four of the images, four of the pictures are useless, and one of them is probably the best picture I've ever taken. It just captures the excitement of Tina Turner. And, uh, and, and the luck was that a couple of days later we went to another Ike and Tina show, and I brought the pictures just to show my friends, but as we were leaving, Ike was walking from one dressing to another, and uh, a friend of mine saw him and said, show Ike Turner the pictures, and he stopped and he said, what pictures? And uh, he liked the pictures, and he brought me in the dressing room, and Tina liked the pictures, and before I knew it, uh, my first album cover was a Tina Turner picture. Well, this is the photograph <coughs> right here. Right. And, you know, this to me, this photograph is so evocative mm. of a Tina Turner performance. Mm. She was just always in motion, an exciting yeah. performer to watch. And I, I love the idea that you just thought, well, I'll <laughs> give it a go. I'll just try it. Well, I'll, I'll you know, see that, what that's the thing, you know, it's it, not digital, right? You couldn't not, tell in the moment. It's not Photoshop. That's one moment. There's one <laughs> second in the life of Tina. People have asked me if I could do a picture like that for them, yeah. and I always say, I'll do what I did if you'll do what Tina did. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, it, it really, you know, she's the most exciting performer, yeah. and one image doesn't really capture it. So uh, this really captures the excitement that's Tina. Could you and, and that started my because they started introducing me to more publicists and they introduced me to more people and it just seemed every time I went somewhere I met more people, got another job and it all just snowballed. I'm in conversation with legendary photographer Bob Gruen. Could you ever in your wildest dreams have imagined that from that moment to today that you'd be sitting here talking about these photos? No. No, when I started out, my idea was to turn on, tune in, and drop out. And uh, I lived with a rock and roll band. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea that was going to turn into actually falling in and be a career. Right. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be. I was, I, the idea was that I didn't want to work. I wanted to just live with a rock band and hang out. And, uh, but I just got good at taking pictures of them. Let's talk about uh, some of these photographs mm. then. Uh, you toured with the Sex Pistols. Mm. And this photograph to me, is so evocative of what it must have been like to tour with the Sex Pistols. Well, they were like uh, the Marx Brothers. They were comedians, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, they were anarchists or comedians, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, but they were the kind of band that when I... Because uh, I, I don't really set up a lot of photo sessions. Mm -hmm. You don't have to tell everybody, come at 3 o'clock on Saturday. I'd rather do something that naturally happens. And I was... Uh, Ma I knew Malcolm McLaren, so he brought me along to go with them. That's actually in uh, Belgium on the way to Radio Luxembourg. And uh, at one point, I just realized the band was together, so I went around the other side of the table to take a picture of them. They saw me with the camera, and Johnny picked up the straw, and the other guys saw that and just immediately fell into the joke in their own way. Right, right. Uh, certain bands can do that. Yeah. And, uh, and they're certainly funny people. Yeah, so these aren't staged. Uh, you weren't overly concerned about lighting, and that's you weren't fussy mm. about making sure. I that don't all bring that a lot of lighting and yeah. setups. Some photographers do. That's not what I do. I, I do a much more natural kind of uh, spur of the moment, catch things in real life kind of pictures. Growing up, I probably stared at this photograph uh -huh. for a very long time. <laughs> the cover of Dressed to Kill and the and the, and the, the album art uh, mm. that went along with it. Um, what's the story behind this? This is an uh, iconic photograph. That was actually, we were making a comic book, a photo novella, which is a comic book made out of photographs uh, for Cream Magazine. And yeah. they had the idea that Kiss was going to start out wearing suits, which was their secret identity. Right. Like, you know, with the suits on, no one would know they were Kiss. <laughs> uh, and they discovered that there's a, a John Cleveland, a cleverly disguised John Denver, yeah. uh, which they thought was the most boring thing of destroying the world, and they wanted to save the world with rock and roll. Right. Uh, so that was one of the pictures that came out of the photo novella. And uh, actually, the, it was in the magazine when the band saw it, and they liked it so much they decided to use it for their album cover. And isn't Gene wearing one of your suits, Gene Simmons? Gene and Ace are both wearing my suits. They didn't have their own. Uh, <laughs> and you had two? 
Huh? What is a rock and roll photographer doing with well, two suits? I, I used to have to take my mom to Temple, and, <laughs> you know, and, I, and uh, I like to dress well. So that's right. Uh, she, I'm a is it? Yeah, today. you look very natty today. <laughs> you know. uh, this next photograph, uh, this is a silkscreened version of it. Uh, mm -hmm. The original photograph of this mm -hmm. is one of the most iconic photographs. It does uh, get of around its, of, its, of its era. When my mom's friends started knowing that picture, she realized I really had gotten somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, not only is it John Lennon, mm -hmm. but that that T-shirt. I think you single-handedly kept the the life of this T-shirt uh, alive for the last. And, and uh, I don't even know who made it. It's not from a company. There was just two guys who used to sell them on a blanket in Times Square. Really. And the first time I saw it, I just liked the power of the graphics, and I bought myself uh, one. And then I saw them again. I bought myself a few more. Uh, one night on the way to visit John in the studio, I saw the guys in the street, and I bought one for him. And I cut the sleeves off with a buck knife to give it a kind of New York feel. Right. Uh, and it was actually a year later that we were taking the picture, and um, John had been to L.A. and back. You know, there was a lost weekend mm -hmm. involved, and the fact that he still had the shirt and knew where it was, um, <laughs> I knew he liked it, uh, and he looked so comfortable in it. And I think that because we were friends by that time, and he was very comfortable with me, uh, the picture kind of shows an openness and a availability, uh, even though he's got the glasses, he yeah, looks yeah. like a pop star. Uh, he's very available in that picture. Well, and, and do you know... When you're taking them, I assume that you probably took. We took a couple of rolls of film. Yeah, a couple day. of yeah. rolls. That's one twenty or thirty pictures, maybe. I don't yeah, know, maybe least, more. Yeah. And and when you're developing them and mm -hmm. you're looking at them and you go, oh, that's the well, one. Well, I have a sense for that. I can look at a contact print. And you just look through it, and you just pick the one that has the feeling and the power. Because uh, for me, I've always tried to capture the feeling of what's going mm -hmm. on and not just the facts. Um, so that's always been very important. And you became his personal photographer, and you were, you were friends. How did that mm -hmm. happen? Uh, well, I met Johnny Yoko through an interview, and uh, it turned out they liked the pictures I did. I, I took some pictures that night. I was actually working on a story about the Elephant's Memory Band mm. uh, that they were using as a backup yeah, band. Yeah, with Yoko um, and John. Right? And yeah. they liked the pictures I took of the group all together and put it in their album cover, and uh, that's when I first met them and started talking to them. And uh, they liked me, and they asked me to come around more often, and... Uh, they actually lived around the corner, a half a block from my house, when they came to New York. Well, and you yeah. went, you did something that was kind of remarkable. You took some photographs, mm. and then you said, I'll, I'll drop these off to you. I'll actually well, the show them to you. the first time I ever saw them was at the Apollo Theater. They yeah. were there for a benefit. When they were leaving backstage, a couple of people were taking their little Instamatic kind of pictures, yeah. and I took a couple of pictures. And John said to the few standing around, he said, people are always taking our picture like this, and we never see them. What happens to these pictures? And I said, I live around the corner from you. I'll show you mine. <laughs> and he said, oh, around the corner. We'll slip them under the door, like very neighborly. Like, yeah. uh, I didn't quite slip it under the door. I did ring the bell. That's right. yeah, yeah. Uh, and much to my surprise, Jerry Rubin answered the door. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'd only seen him on TV. And I was not <laughs> expecting him to answer John and Yoko's doorbell, you know. Um, and I remember he asked if they were expecting me, and I said no, and I just left the pictures for them. Uh, and a few years later, when, after we got to be friends, Yoko and I were talking about that at one point, and she said that really impressed them because nobody wanted to just give them something and leave. Right. Everybody wanted something back. Wanted a piece and, of uh, it, yeah. You know, I just thought, I'll give them to you and see what happens. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it, it mattered, <laughs> you know, they liked that. And you were there for some remarkable moments uh, in his life, including, mm. I think, the last time that he and Paul were in a room together. Paul McCartney were in a room I don't know together. if it was the last time they ever saw each other, but I was there one December when uh, yeah. we were in the, in the bedroom watching TV, and all of a sudden the doorbell rang. 
and they're living in a very secure building. Like yeah. the doorbell of the apartment does not <laughs> ring unless the doorman has told <laughs> right. you somebody's going to come and ring it. <laughs> so the last time that happened, it was customs agents trying to throw John out of the country. So <laughs> they, they were, I mean, immigration agents, but they, so they were a little nervous, and they asked me to go check the door. And they were double doors, so I opened the inside door, and I heard some Christmas carols. And I yelled back and said, don't worry, it's just kids singing Christmas carols. <laughs> but I opened the outside door, and it was Paul and Linda McCartney. And uh, wow. not just kids. <laughs> uh, and I said, oh, I think you want to see the guys in the bedroom. And I brought them in. And uh, they were all very happy to see each other, in spite of what lawyers or press mm -hmm. people say. Uh, they seemed like old friends who were very happy to see each other. They were English. They had a cup of tea. Right. You know, and uh, it was a very nice meeting. Yeah, I was uh, but I didn't take any pictures because they didn't ask me to. And right. it wasn't a public event. And I didn't want to turn it into a public event and say, hey, you're two Beatles. Let me take a picture. Because yeah, yeah. they just seemed like old friends. Well, I always felt that there was. I was a waiting for them to ask me. Right. <laughs> well, I always felt that there was a bond between mm -hmm. them that would not be broken by lawyers and right. whatever else happened right. in the press. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, it feels like you sensed close. that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And certainly, over the years, what I've seen, you know, Ringo stayed close with Yoko uh, through the years. Um, you know, business is business. That's yeah. one thing handled by the lawyers, and the press sometimes get word from lawyers, but people tend to uh, relate more personally. That was one of the most legendary rock and roll photographers of all time, Bob Gruen. That's all the time we have for this week. I am thrilled to have you on board. My thanks to Shania Twain, Tegan and Sarah, Kristen Bell, Adina Menzel, Josh Gad, and Bob Gruen for stopping by. But most of all, my thanks to you for tuning in every week. You can watch Pop Life on the CTV News Channel at 8.30 on Saturday evenings and then again at midnight We'll talk again next week.